This is Calgary Today with Angela Cocott on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. It was back in June of last year that the federal government legalized physician-assisted dying. However, there still is a lot of questions as to who can actually go through this, what doctors need to know. I want to do a little bit of a check here with the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Jeff Blackmer, Vice President of Medical Professionalism, joins us today. Hello, Dr. Blackmer. Hi there. Well, we have had physician-assisted dying since last June, and I'm curious what you're hearing from your members when it comes to those willing to assist someone in their end of life. Well, we're hearing different things for sure, and I, I think that reflects sort of the diversity of views of the of the profession and, and certainly the public on this. Um, on the one hand, uh, certainly there are some physicians uh, who have had a good experience with the system, I would say, who have made this a, a part of their practice, uh, who see it as, as sort of a, a, a potential tool in alleviating uh, patient suffering when, when other medical interventions uh, don't work, and certainly I, I think are doing it out of a real sense of caring and compassion. Uh, certainly we're also hearing from members and from physicians who are finding it very difficult work. Uh, some physicians have, have tried it, have participated uh, in one or two procedures and have found it uh, too personally difficult uh, and have not been able to continue with that. So uh, I, I think it was anticipated that we would certainly see uh, different reactions and, and that's been the case so far. I know when the law was being formed, there were a lot of questions as to who could actually require the physician-assisted dying or what state of their health they had to have. Can you just remind my listeners who is able to use this in order to end their life legally, I suppose? Sure. So there's a, a relatively sort of long list of, of considerations and, and sort of qualifications. But fundamentally, uh, what this is intended for is someone who has an incurable illness and who is uh, at the end of their sort of natural lifespan. So the, the wording in the, uh, the legislation says uh, that it's someone whose de- natural death has become reasonably foreseeable. So it doesn't necessarily mean that, that their death you know, is expected to happen tomorrow or in the next week, but that they are on a trajectory towards dying. So it's not someone with a benign illness or someone who's expected to live for a number of years. And for most patients, what we're hearing is that, you know, somewhere around 90% of, of requests uh, are very straightforward. The patients either do or do not qualify based on, on the legislation as it's set out. But there certainly are some patients who fall in a gray area where it's, it's subject to some sort of clinical interpretation. Uh, and that, again, is something we had anticipated that there would be, be a period of adjustment um, where we would not be entirely clear on every case that came forward. Well, and as you say, gray area, reasonably foreseeable. Death must be reasonably foreseeable. That could be anyone's interpretation, couldn't it? Well, to an extent, uh, and again, this is you know not necessarily clinical language that physicians use, and certainly there are some patients who come forward where it is definitely open to interpretation. Um, 
Now, bearing in mind that the court case uh, responsible for the change in legislation had had left us with probably even even more vague language that said that people who qualified had to have a grievous and irremediable condition. So I think what the language in the bill helps us to understand is at least where along the spectrum of grievousness, you know, this condition has to fall. So it does have to be something that's quite severe that's leading uh, on a trajectory towards death. But certainly um, there's no question that for some patients, you you know, for example, we hear about uh, perhaps patients with... uh, uh, with Parkinson's disease or Huntington's disease, where they have a grievous and irremediable condition, uh, but depending on the exact you know circumstances of their individual condition, may or may not uh, have a reasonably foreseeable death. So there is definitely uh, a need for clinical judgment in some of these cases, and it's not always uh, an easy judgment to make. Obviously, every case is different, but could you walk me through an example of how it would play out? It it comes from the patient, and then where does it go from there if someone is looking to have a physician assist them in dying? Sure. So if we think about a case that, you know, that most people would consider relatively straightforward. So, for example, someone with advanced cancer uh, who, who is far along in the process, uh, whose death has become reasonably foreseeable, uh, who is still having pain and suffering in spite of, you know, in spite of the use of medications, uh, they or, or one of their family members would often ask a member of the healthcare team. So whether that's their family doctor or if they're in a facility, it could be a nurse or a doctor that's looking after them, would ask them about this this intervention and whether or not they might qualify. And that would start a process. And at the moment, it depends very much on sort of, you know, who their physician is and what facility they might be in as to how that will be handled. But ultimately, uh, they will be put in touch with a physician who would do an assessment. Uh, so a physician who has, has made it known that they are willing to do these assessments would do a first assessment. Uh, there would then be a second assessment by an independent physician. And those two physicians uh, or, a nurse, or nurse practitioners would verify that the patient meets the criteria that's set out under the legislation. And of course, there's all the attendant paperwork and forms and things that patients need to sign and and have witnessed by independent witnesses. And then once that verification occurs, then then a date and a time is set uh, for the assisted death itself. Is there a cost to the family or the patient? No. So in all provinces, this is covered uh, by the uh, by the public Medicare system. And uh, I believe most provinces also have made the cost of the medication uh, free of charge. Um, as it happens, you know, most of these are actually occurring in facilities, which is sort of interesting uh, because we know that a lot of patients, uh, when they think about it, express a preference to die at home. But in fact, most assisted deaths so far seem to be taking place in facilities. And under the Canada Health Act, uh, medications in facilities are also provided under the public system. You mentioned, Jeff, either the patient or its family member sort of sets the wheels in motion. How important, though, is it that the patient is the one who ultimately makes the decision? Because this goes back to the, the health, the mental health of the patient, how important that is. So that's absolutely critically important. It really does come from the patient. And we recognize when it comes to things like health and particularly at the end of their life, the the family plays a a hugely important role in terms of supporting the patient through that time and and being there for them and, and often providing, you know, really important informal caregiving. 
However, ultimately, this is, of course, the patient's decision. And there are sort of mechanisms in the legislation. You know, for example, um, a family member uh, cannot witness, um, you know, the patient's uh, signature um, because there is sort of that inherent conflict that they might, you know, inherit uh, some of the, you know, some of that person's uh, um, material possession. So, um, you know, we try and, and really make the family a part of this conversation, obviously, while recognizing that we really do need to make sure that the patient is doing this without being coerced. So we don't ever want to see situations where patients, for example, are feeling pressured by family members, you know, because they're too busy to look after the patient or the patient has become a burden. And, you know, it's hard to imagine those types of scenarios, but we do want to make sure that there are are things in in place uh, to ensure that the patient is really making, you know, a fully independent decision. And those were all concerns that were raised as the legislation was being made as well. I, I want to go back, though, to that mental health, because what if I had a living will and I put in it that, you know, when I am no longer of sound mind and body, I would want to have a physician-assisted death? Is, is that legal then? Because when I was mentally healthy, I made that decision, and then the time comes that I want to end my life. So that's a really interesting question, and I'll I'll unpack that a little bit. Um, So no, under the legislation, that is not allowed for because the patient has to be capable both at the time that they express their intent to undergo assisted dying as well as at the time of the intervention itself. So it doesn't allow for advanced directives. Now, um, two other important points there. One is that the government is actually currently putting a process in place to study that issue to see if that's something that could, you know, potentially be included in future versions of the legislation. But the other thing is that practically speaking, uh, other jurisdictions that do allow for that have had some, some difficult challenges there. So, for example... In speaking with colleagues in the Netherlands, they've indicated there are situations where a person will put that in their living will and then the time will come. And, for example, the person may be in a a long-term care facility and they won't remember having made that request Mm. because their dementia has advanced and they no longer want assisted dying because they're in a situation where even though they may not recognize their surroundings or they may require full care, otherwise they may be well. And it's very distressing at that point for the family and the patient and, of course, the physician to try and figure out what to do. So it's not necessarily that it's an, an, an unresolvable issue, but I think, um, you know, the approach that the government has taken, which is not to include it in the, initi- the initial legislation, but to study it further, is something that makes uh, sense at this point in time. Would this be covered under malpractice insurance if a family came back and questioned why their loved one, why a physician assisted their loved one's death? Like, I wonder if there's any concern from physicians about this coming back to um, affect them as far as the family saying, we never wanted this to happen. We know our loved one never wanted this to happen. So absolutely. I I mean, there's always... You know, for for any physician who practices medicine, there's always sort of this underlying layer of of medical legal types of issues and and knowing that, you know, complaints could be made against you or lawsuits could be launched. And, and, uh, you know, that's simply the reality. And we do we do have uh, legal liability uh, insurance and providers in Canada who, who are quite good. The additional layer with this situation is that unlike pretty much every other, you know, area of medicine, it's actually captured under criminal code um, law. And so uh, the penalty is not just, you know, potentially loss of your license, but going to jail. And so for physicians, that's an entirely new um, sort of scenario and consideration. 
And I think, you know, the, the, the colleagues that I have who are practicing say um, they're not too worried about that, but they're very careful to follow the legislation. But for some people who are sort of reluctant for a variety of reasons, that may sort of be the deciding factor that they're just not willing to, to take that risk, however small it may be in reality. And Jeff, finally, if people are listening saying, you know what, this is something I definitely want to look into, does the CMA have a list of doctors who are willing to do physician-assisted dying? So that's not something that we do, but it's an excellent question. And so um, in some provinces like Alberta, they've actually set up a, a central repository of physicians who are willing providers. And there is a a number on the Alberta Health Services website uh, where people can go uh, and get more information and be connected with the provider. In other provinces, that happens, for example, at the facility level uh, or more informally. So it, it's sort of a work in progress, um, but uh, but the first step is generally that sort of the, your, your primary uh, care physician or if, or if you're in hospital, the team that's looking after you to, to set those wheels in motion. Great information. Jeff, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Jeff Blackmer, Vice President of Medical Professionalism with the Canadian Medical Association. Calgary Today with Angela Cocott, weekdays at 3 on News Talk 770 Calgary.